in unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. So tonight we're carrying on with the clear mind precepts. We're really charging through these. I'm kind of proud of us actually for getting through so much content. Um, and I'm happy to be studying this. I've never looked at them so closely before. I mean, there's one or two that came up for me over and over again <laughs> that were in my face, but I've never really thoroughly studied them in order like this. So it's it's been uh, deep in my practice and my understanding. So tonight, uh, Steve and I are going to kind of go back and forth with both of them. So I'm going to start with, uh, I vow not to be possessive of anything. And in the full moon ceremony, after we vow that, the doshi says one phrase, one verse, that is the 10,000 things and 100 grasses, one dharma, one realization is all Buddhas and ancestors. Therefore, from the beginning, there has been no stinginess at all. Lovely thought. However, for me, uh, this precept is a lot about me, 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 mine, <laughs> and what I want and what I think and uh, all of that. And Reb actually has a very nice thing to say at the very beginning when he's talking about this. This precept points to a disease and a wonder. The disease is stinginess. The wonder is giving. Stinginess is a tightness, a constriction of the heart. It is born out of ignorance and interdependence, not realizing how our lives are embraced and sustained by the kindness of all beings. So if, if I hold it in this way, I think a part of my practice is to see where I'm holding, uh, where, where I feel that constriction in my heart, whether it's somebody wanting something from me I don't want to give, whether it's um, feeling like I just can't give anymore, whether it's uh, my heart constricting around any, any number of things. And, and to understand, I, I think some of the things that we do during Sashin and some of the practices that we do, we acknowledge how interrelated we are with all beings. Bef before we eat, we thank all the beings that brought us this food. And I was never very aware of where my food came from before I started practicing. Um, and what a generous gift it was of so many beings to get me that food. And 
like all the precepts for me, they're not about trying to be something I'm not. <laughs> they're about being aware of the interrelatedness of myself, that there's no separate self, no separateness between me and the trees and other beings, other animals. Uh, yeah. So Steve, did you want to jump in? Sure, sure. Could say a few things. Um, I was, uh, I kind of got fascinated by the part that the Doshi says um, in response to the uh, the group saying, I vow not to be possessive of anything. And the Doshi says, one phrase, one verse, one, sorry, one phrase, one verse, that is the 10,000 things and 100 grasses. And I'm thinking that to me, that's means that one verse is everything or one phrase. And often in Buddhism, usually when they talk about a phrase or a verse, they're talking about a phrase or a verse of the Dharma. Uh, and that could be um, that could be in a chant that we say, or it could be in a sutra, it could be something that we're reading this part of the teaching. But what I think is really interesting is that although um, Although in the English version, it doesn't actually do a play on words. I think it's probably a safe assumption that it is a, meant on a play on words, or at least on concepts, because Dharma in Buddhism can refer to both phenomena as well as the Buddhist teachings. So if it says, so it says one phrase, one verse is the 10,000 things, which is another way of saying everything, and 100 grasses, everything. So if you've got the... 10,000 things and 100 grass, you've got everything, everything, everything. Um, it's just more ways of saying that. So I thought that was really interesting. It's just like, um, and what it says to me is that the teaching, that some, some saying like um, prana paramita, something like that, is as much a part of the universe as my pinky finger. And, and it is the universe because it contains everything as Kate was talking about being part of everything and our food. We don't, we can't live without the food that comes from so many sources and interdependence um, of all things. So I think that what we're talking about is how, um, how there's nothing to possess because everything is so connected. And, um, and it also says, after that one dharma, one realization is all Buddhas and ancestors. Therefore, from the beginning, there has been no stinginess at all. I think that's saying that there's one dharma, maybe, but it's in all of the ancestors. There have been millions of them, I'm sure. I mean, we may know of thousands of them, but I'm sure there have been millions of them. People who sat zazen, people who've done some form of meditation, who've brought this to us, people who sit with us now, People who arouse way-seeking mind, who um, want, who are questioning why am I here, and just or all those big questions. Um, even though we say don't ask why so much, we say ask how in this practice. It's the spirit of the question I'm talking about, not the exact phrasing of it. It's um, so the one Dharma is as unique as each one of us, 
because it's in each one of us. The teaching is in all of us, and we bring it out in our own way and practice. So um, I have a little bit more to say, but I think I'll uh, let you see if you have more uh, on this precept, Kate. Sure. Um, well, and when Dharma, when practice, I'm going to talk a little bit in a bit about uh, the other thing I really appreciated about uh, Reb's writing ab about this precept as he talks about giving and as a part of being generous and not being possessive and he talks about different categories of giving but before I do that um, and this responds more to what you were talking about uh, the Dharma one Dharma and it's not my dharma, it's, a, it's the dharma, <laughs> the all-pervasive dharma, and I'm not being enlightened, everybody's being enlightened, but, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> I say that a lot in my practice, but, but it feels like it's just me sometimes, or, or when I sit down on the cushion, um, However, it's not. And I think those most transcendent moments happen for me when I understand it's not just me. It's, it's, it's not just me. It's, it's everything. It's the all-pervasive dharma. And the precept means that it's all great to be sitting there in zazen and be peaceful although i know we're not always peaceful all the time when we sit but over time there is a, a, a kind of stability that happens and a kind of solace and consolation that i find in the daily practice of lighting the candle and bowing and sitting and the the consistency of that and the rhythm of that in my life and but if i can walk out of here and into the kitchen and if there are dirty dishes in the sink <laughs> you know ah! <laughs> I, I i'm really not that bad about it but that's just an example i, I think the point of this precept uh, about not being possessive of anything is to carry that out in that composure, that sense of consolation, that sense of peace, that sense of interconnectedness and relatedness and compassion and all of the beautiful aspects of the Dharma need to walk out of the studio and into my life along with me. Uh, Reb points out that Suzuki Roshi said, it's relatively easy to be enlightened when sitting in the meditation hall, but the point of our practice is to extend the energy and composure, composure, boy, I, I love that word, it's something I aspire to, the energy and composure of our sitting practice into daily life. Returning from the meditation retreat, kindly inhabiting your experience, being present with your posture and breathing, you are full of joy at giving. You give your face to the bus driver. You give your mindful physical presence to the sales clerk. You could go on like this until all beings are full of joy at the ever-present opportunity to 
practice giving. So we have a lot of opportunities to not be possessive of anything. Yeah, I think that that leads right into some other thoughts that I was having about this precept is that it really says, don't be possessive of anything. And we've been emphasizing the Dharma and I've been, and um, last thing I said, I was a little bit abstract and on the words, but I have, but I also think it means we can't possess the body. I mean, everything is teaching us. Our own bodies are teaching us. And don't even possess the body, I think it's saying. Um, and uh, to me, that um, doesn't mean to ignore or abuse our body. It just means to care for it. And uh, I felt I kind of um, thought, well, here's a challenge to that. I thought about um, how I've recently discovered that I have high blood pressure, I'm going to have to take pills and I have to like change the way I eat and have less sodium. And I said to myself, but my body wants salty things. My body loves salty things. And I thought that's a very body sensation. So isn't this, I say care for my body, but my body doesn't want to do what would care for it. Isn't that, but no, that, that uh, it seems like a paradox, but um, on further consideration, I I'm, I'm, was getting confused between my wants and my needs. I mean, my body would be very happy if I followed the low sodium diet. Um, and um, in fact, if I could get my mind out of the way, uh, my body would be happy with, with much plainer food than I normally eat, less salted foods. So it's, it's the idea of my body, not my body. And, and so being possessive of the body and thinking I am my body is like saying everything I, this part of this wants is what my body needs. I am my body, but I'm not listening. I'm not caring. I'm not learning from my body as one of the many things of one of everything in the universe that is a teacher that is teaching the Dharma. I, I learned a little bit of that too from when, um, when I broke my arm one minute, I was on the bicycle, uh, not thinking about my arm at all. Next moment, my arm became my entire life for months. You know, it was always an object of attention. Uh, the, its limits, the limits of this body, the things I take for granted. Uh, that, that became a, it felt, I mean, I'm not saying I would recommend it, but yeah, I learned so much. It was, uh, there was a lot of, of sort of beauty and joy in just realizing that, um, that life is so much bigger than my expectations. Uh, remembering to be grateful for the smallest things like uh, that, um, you know, within a week I could start, um, you know, moving my arm a little bit more. Uh, so all these things are, are teaching and all these things are teaching to care. Um, and then um, also I was, um, I have to admit that I struggled with this precept a little bit. And um, it, today I, was um, kind of, um, you know, I sort of saw some parts of it. I saw that um, that we can hold on to say our understanding of the Dharma or our understanding of something we find important and we can be begrudging of teaching it or we can, um, or we can try to convince somebody that our way is more beneficial without being very skillful about it. I mean, I got all that, but somehow, um, I had to, I had to go on a walk and I talked to Chia, my wife who can't be here, but she had some uh, insights that um, out of a long talk, I got 
this, that another way to think of it is that um, is that not being possessive can mean admitting you're wrong. Um, and it can, and uh, she pointed, as we were walking, she pointed to a turkey vulture that was flying ahead and, and said, do you think that turkey vulture has the same map of life and what should it should do as a field mouse that we can't see in the field? And I thought that was actually quite an amazing way of looking at not being possessive of our ideas. I mean, even if I'm teaching or being taught by another Buddhist, they might be from a different culture and the Dharma is, has been interpreted differently, different places, or maybe somebody who, um, who just is coming from, has had a completely different experience. And what they're trying to tell me is something that I'm not getting because my roadmap is so different. So I think don't be possessive of our views in any way. And don't be possessive even of our emotions. Um, like like anger, just sort of transitioning. We're going to get to anger in a little bit, but um, it's uh, about not holding on to it and being generous enough to even share sometimes that without blaming somebody in a kind way, like you hurt me, or I feel hurt by what you said. In a non, it might be even more too much blaming to say you hurt me. It might be you said this and I felt hurt. Don't be possessive of the anger. Don't don't hold on to it, and um, and that doesn't mean also suppress it. That's that's about um, not grasping and not pushing it away. Oh, I was just thinking about some of the things you said. So anyway, thank you for that. So we have been talking a lot about the Dharma and about ideas and. The other part of this is is giving and traditionally there are three categories of giving which are material giving uh, the gift of fearlessness and giving the dharma and we've been talking a lot about the dharma so i'm just material gifts are pretty straightforward that's pretty straightforward you decide where you're going to give something tangible and and do what you can and that can be tricky i think steve and i were talking a little bit about this does that mean i live in a hut so that i can give all of my money to all of these good causes or you know i think oh well if i was bill gates i'd be giving millions of dollars too that kind of thing that that is something I think we all just giving our circumstances and our conditions we have to grapple with. And for me, it's never done. My own personal feeling is I never give enough. It's a constant dance for me in terms of that kind of thing. But the gift of fearlessness, I thought was really an interesting thing. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is somebody like Martin Luther King or political activism or something like that. That's, that's the gift of being fearless in the face of, of resistance from the popular culture. So the first form is to liberate beings from physical captivity, bondage, or torment. This form of giving can manifest as liberating people from prison or saving them from drowning. I think about Sonny there. I mean, he didn't liberate everybody from prison, but he, he was very generous. And there were a lot of people, inmates in that 
place that benefited from his generous attitude towards who they were as human beings. And then it can also take the form of releasing birds, flies, or other wild animals or in, who are in some way trapped or endangered, protecting worms from cold and heat, or saving insects and other small creatures from burning and drowning is also a form of giving fearlessly. And that had never occurred to me. And there's a wonderful poem in here that I really, really love. And it goes like this by Joseph Bruchak. I've never heard of him, so excuse me if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. The old man must have stopped our car two dozen times to climb out and gather into his hands the small toads blinded by our lights and leaping live drops of rain. The rain was falling, a mist about his white hair, and I kept saying, you can't save them all, accept it, get back, get back in the car, we've got places to go. But leathery hands full of wet brown life knee-deep in the summer roadside grass, he just smiled and said, they have places to go too. I thought that was really wonderful. Another thing I've realized since living here so much is I'm being watched all the time. And I never realized that. I, I'm always the observer of nature watching the birds, watching the clouds across the sky, watching. They're always watching me, too. I walk out and the squirrels know where I am. The birds know where I am. The hummingbirds know when I'm bringing them. It's been kind of a revelation to me to realize how much I'm being observed as I move through the world, too. So I think that's all I've got, Steve. We're, we're getting close to uh, maybe wanting to shift over unless you have more to say and i think we should take questions in i have nothing nothing to add except maybe you know if, if somebody has a question for me or or for you i think it now might be a good time to break it up for a moment yeah so does anybody have questions or comments about this precept liam I love that poem that you read, Kate. I heard that somewhere before. I don't remember where, but getting out and catching the frogs and they have some place to go to, I, I, that really touches me. Uh, and something else you said, you know, it's like I'll donate to one group and I get eight or nine emails from groups that they share my list with. <laughs> it's always kind of a conflict. It's like, well, I, I'd like to help, but I can't <laughs> everybody. And then Steve, uh, you talked about if you're not listening to your body, if you're not listening to your body, then so you're listening to something else, what are you listening to that says, I want salt or whatever it says? It's a habitual response. A habitual response. Yeah, it's just um, this ingrained habit. I think it feels like my body. Yeah. But, uh, but if I really notice where it comes from, it's like basically one memory of my body which is the mouth feel and the tongue feel. That's not my whole body. I want to believe it's my whole body. My stomach says, put something in it, but it's not asking for the specific thing that my, that my mouth and tongue are, or I'm believing my mouth and tongue want. 
I mean, I, I examined that too. Yeah, those habitual things are so strong. Thank you. Jody? Yeah, I like the, uh, the word composure also. I was thinking about how wonderful it could be if every day in my work as a social worker, every patient I engage, I engage with, that I could keep my composure and kindness and compassion. But it seems that I haven't perfected that yet. Um, <laughs> and I'm easily swayed. Uh, I have at least learned that I'm easily triggered by particular types of behaviors in people. There's a lot I, I can, it doesn't even bother me and I can just keep my composure and do my job like I'm supposed to do and, and that like I want to do and do it joyfully. And, and then I'm on another call and something happens and it's just, I'm just in this other place of resistance, you know, and I, and I, and I want to be selfish. Right? And I, and it's not like a super conscious thought. It's more of like this defensive reaction of like protection. Like I need to keep what I have and get you away from me because you're draining me. And that's the message that I'm, that I tell myself about uh, particular individuals that I, you know, that I'm charged with serving and supporting. And so I have some work to do there. And um, I guess I'm, I appreciate that I, that I see it. I just, I hope that I can get to a place where I'm not stepping in that hole each time that it gets to where I can, you know, remember that regardless of what part of the garden, all of us weeds grow in, like, we all need sunshine and water and, and care and kindness and, you know, to help grow. And um, I just need to keep that in mind that, and not be stingy with, with my, um, not with the resources that I know or the, or the effort I put in, but stingy with my patience, I think, and my, the kindness in my voice and the joy. I think that's what I, I kind of, that's what I'm stingy with, with people that are, I have defined as difficult or triggering me. I'm going to uh, put a post-it up at my station that says composure so I can remember this conversation. So thank you. Zach, was that you putting your hands up or just bowing to Jody? It was me moving around. But just one quickie little comment. You know, when you think about stinginess versus being helpful, one seems more, um, seems like it leads to suffering more than the other does, which is maybe the whole point of all this stuff, is that being stingy kind of, at least to me, doesn't feel as good as helping my neighbor or, um, something in that thing. So if you bring it back to the basics, it seems like uh, there's a lesson there. Oh, one other thing. Steve, I really like your glasses. <laughs> Why, thanks for not being stingy with your compliment. Um, yeah, those are pretty, pretty recent prescriptions. I broke my prescription in the bike fall and I, I've been using reading glasses, finally got around to getting prescriptions again.
So shall we move on? Oh, sorry, Kelly. I just also a quick thing about stinginess. First off, I, I like that word. I like stingy. It's a fun thing to say. But also, I like that it's phrased, there is no stinginess at all, as opposed to, you should not be stingy. I'd love to hear your comments on this, but it feels to me like it's saying something to the effect of, you can be standing in the place where there is no stinginess, as opposed to taking some sort of direct action. Does, does that kind of make sense? Do you, do you, I have yeah. a response to do. Oh, go go ahead then. Oh, I just, I love that thought <laughs> that there is a place of no stinginess at all. And again, I, that's something we can aspire to. <laughs> I'm not sure I I can get there, but I'm glad to know it's there. Kind of like heaven or something yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of it's kind of a relief to think about isn't it it's it is like, kind of yeah there there's more in the next um precept too that that relates to that so i'll hold off steve did you have a response to that hmm. no i think that just no it's pretty similar to what you were saying but i guess it's uh it's that comes back to gratefully receiving the teaching of everything and uh, not holding back in receiving or, or, or giving. I like that too. I don't think it's heaven. It would be heaven. <laughs> so we'll move along and um, Steve, did you want me to start? I can do that. So the next one, I have had lots of practice with, <laughs> I think for months at a time i would come to the full moon ceremony and say i was working on the precept of not harboring ill will it had a lot to do with um well for a while it had a lot to do with a divorce i was going through and uh, and then later it had to do with some circumstances at work and people that i was having a difficult time with so we say i vow not to harbor ill will. Dido Lori, the language they use is actualize harmony, do not be angry. And Dogen says, not proceeding, not retreating, not real, not unreal. There is an ocean of bright clouds. There is an ocean of sublime clouds when there is no anger. And it kind of harkens back to what we were just talking about. There's no stinginess. There's no anger. And I believe that's true. And I can't articulate why I believe that's true. But I do believe that's true. There is a place of no stinginess. There is a place of no anger. And my effort needs to be towards that place rather than picking apart everything that everyone's ever done wrong to me forever or the insult that hurt my feelings today or 10,000 things that I can harbor Ill, Ill will about. 
And the problem is, for me and all this, is my too solid idea of self. I'm not sure I can escape that when I'm living in space and time. But it's useful to understand that, I think, that that person who's in my face is Buddha. So what do I do in the meantime if I can't be in that beautiful sublime place where there is no anger and no taking umbrage at anything anybody says to me? And my only answer for that, I really thought about this a lot and and I really try when we're working with these precepts to, to read more so that I can see what other people say about it, but then it's it's most important that I try and make it my own. So if I can't be there, what do I do? And my best answer is sit zazen over and over again, because that gives me the opportunity for that stuff to arise. Because I don't know about you, but when when I would go sit after a long day at work and I would get on the cushion in the temple, I didn't just drop right into Bodhisattva bliss. I mean, my whole day was running through <laughs> um, my mind. And part of, part of sitting was letting that stuff be there and not be there. And the other is, is a great 12-step admonishment, which is fake it till you make it. So if I find myself uh, being angry, and I don't think I should fake, I don't think I cannot ever be angry. I think the point of the precept is really, it's, I, I don't, I think that angry, he says that anger is incredibly debilitating. But I don't think it's so much the anger that's debilitating. It's the holding the anger in my heart is what's debilitating for me over time. And in 12-step programs, we call it resentment. (laughs) Resentment is the number one offender. And that's been true for me. So I need to really examine what I'm holding in my heart and make an effort to understand where that's coming from so I can move forward. And I also wrote down, and Steve alluded to this when he was talking earlier, to learn skillful means to speak up when it's necessary so that I don't hold the anger in my heart. It's much cleaner for me to be direct when somebody says, you hurt me then something can happen. My habit before I started, well, before I got sober and started practicing and all of that stuff was just to be quiet and smolder and smile, right? So because that didn't rock any boats and that doesn't work. I can tell you that for sure. So uh, a lot of my work has been to understand how to speak up assertively, but without harm, and to clarify. Steve? 
I second what you said, Kate, about um, Zazen being a, a way to be with anger. I've actually been feeling a lot of anger lately, which makes this very fresh for me. So I was laid off from a job I've had for a long time couple of months ago and, and they've kept me around to sort of off-ramp and help them transition and my last day is coming up May 1st and I was just waking up every day for a while just mad and I thought well am I I'm kind of over being mad at the company for terminating me I've sort of moved on from that in some ways so I thought well who am I mad at and it came to me that I was mad at myself but I didn't quite know what I had to be mad at myself for. I didn't do anything wrong. And then I sort of realized that actually it was, uh, and this was from, and it's another thing about ang anger that's helpful besides Zazen is talking about it. So I, fortunately I have a, a spouse who's really receptive to talking about things like this. And I've learned to talk more um, over the years and Discussing it, I realized I'm angry at myself for being naive, for not having an option, a plan B. I mean, I know the corporate world is rough, and I, I know that no matter what they say, loyalty isn't rewarded. But I acted like I thought that was the way it worked, and continued for 10 years, basically. And the next step, though, is what do I do with that? So what do we do when we're angry at ourselves or or any kind of anger that just feels like it's really suffocating? To me, the next thing isn't to continue to argue because it'd be easy to argue and say, oh, come on, you know, don't don't hate yourself. And that might be good sometimes to, as Kate mentioned the other day, Mary says sometimes just say there, there. That might be useful sometimes. But it felt like this time what was useful was to just say, okay, I hear you. I hear what you're saying, anger. And not to then build on top of it, say, is this anger right or wrong? Should I be feeling this way or not? That's how I feel. And actually, that lets go of a layer of it, of the anger, just to kind of acknowledge and accept that this is, this is how it is, this is how it's manifesting, not telling myself I'm right to feel that way or wrong to feel that way. But just this is how I feel. I think I'll give it the baton to you for a sec, Kate. Rep also says that an antidote is patience. <laughs> and we all love patience practice, right? But I think that's what Steve's talking about in be patient with yourself and be patient with others and understand that I have no idea what other people are, what's happened in the hour before I've seen them even. So a pausing and being patient with others is a good idea but also with ourselves i think patience and curiosity are two qualities it's been helpful for me to ask what what is this 
<laughs> what what is this that's happening and and to see where it is in my body which is usually uh, I am usually tight in some way or I've got a knot in my stomach or if I'm really angry I'm kind of quivering <laughs> that that doesn't happen that often but I, I have been shaking with rage in my life and it's a very physical thing when and, and can be very powerful I, I, I think for a long time um, because I was so unexpressive of any of my anger like most things I have to hit both walls before I come to the middle so it would build up and build up and build up and then bluey everything would come out that was wrong for the last <laughs> 10 years or something probably not that long so um and again the growing awareness that comes with sitting zazen every day it, 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 you catch stuff much earlier i think at least i do and before it gets to the boiling point i can be attentive to what that anger is and find skillful means to express it or to have the opportunity to mary always says don't forget yourself and a lot of my anger uh, and I, from what i've heard from many of my sangha buddies is is the same thing we have a lot of anger directed this way towards ourselves and that can take me to a very dark place that kind of anger at my uh inadequacies in whatever way happens to be the flavor of the day i haven't done something well enough i haven't done enough in my life i haven't contributed blah 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 blah, blah. it goes on and on so i think this is a really useful precept in remembering to include ourselves and to be patient with ourselves and to be generous with ourselves and to be kind and curious curiosity is a great is a great teacher it's a great uh, for me it's really been useful to be curious instead of judgmental or critical curiosity is has has really helped ease things in my own my own heart as well I think that's about all I have on that without reading more. I do have a couple of other things to read that I picked out from Dido Lori's, but um, did you have something you wanted to carry yeah, on? Yeah, we, we might get to that. I don't have a lot more. Um, so if you want to read after this, probably we'll have time. Just uh, give some thought to the um, call and response again, uh, which is always what I come back to in the precepts these days. Um, so that the call is I vow not to harbor ill will. And the response is not negative, not positive, neither real nor unreal. There is an ocean of illuminated clouds and an ocean of bright clouds. Anger is not good or bad. It's not positive or negative by itself, right? And it's easy to take it as 
positive or negative. We can treat it as something permanent. I'll always be angry with that person, or that person always does this to me. Um, I'm an angry person. It's not permanent. Or, or we could, and that's grasping. We could treat it as unreal, as if it doesn't matter. You know, I just, my, I, I'm not being reasonable with my anger. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not real. My anger isn't real. You know, how could I feel that way? I don't feel that way. Well, if we feel the way, we feel the way we feel. <laughs> and so um, some schools of Buddhism and some practitioners, well, including myself, make the mistake of thinking that we're trying to suppress our, our anger in this practice, which isn't it. It's about not being attached. It's not about squishing it down. And sometimes not being attached will, will mean telling somebody, I feel angry with what you did. The, the idea is to, to care and to not be harmful. And there's, there's nothing contradictory about being kind and expressing anger at the same time. Kate and I also talked about whether anger at yourself is ever a good thing. And I'm not sure whether we quite agreed on it, but my take is that, yes, it can be a good thing. Again, if you don't hold to the idea that anger is itself good or bad, just what is anger? Anger is like a certain feeling of tightness in the belly or you're constricting in the head or all that, however you feel anger, but anger is a certain phenomenon and a certain feeling that you can identify. Well, maybe sometimes the anger at myself can be the same as if I were telling somebody, don't walk in the street, there's a car coming, especially a child. And so sometimes um, I catch myself and um, doing something or about to do something. Okay, let's say that I decided to eat a great big hamburger and I forgot about my salt intake problems or my sodium. And I, I might say, stop that, don't get the hamburger. You know, it's like because my habit is so strong that I'm almost about to order the hamburger from the menu and the voice in my head says, you idiot. And then it's gone. Then the, the anger is gone when I remember, don't buy the hamburger and I don't buy the hamburger. Um, I even, uh, I even sometimes, I even routinely call myself stupid in my head and to other people when it, when I talk about my bike fall, I was somewhere I shouldn't have been. I was on a very narrow path. I was dumb. But there's not a lot of emotion that comes with it. There's not a holding on to it. So I, I think that the what what the uh, having a brief flare of anger about my to myself about that sometimes reminds me of is don't do that again. You know, it's uh, it's it's great to have a visceral reaction uh, to that will uh, you know change change us to do things that are more more beneficial. Maybe we can end with all of our quotes because I do finally have some quotes. I gave a, a whole talk about patience um, as as being sitting in the middle of, of a fire, which we never recorded. So now we're getting this recorded. I was very inspired by Reb Anderson, where he gave both a talk about this and he additionally wrote in Being Upright about this. He says, Zen Master Yunman says, all Buddhas are constantly turning the wheel of Dharma in the midst of fierce flames. There is pain around every Buddha's meditation seat. It forms a ring of fire. 
Around this is another ring of fire composed of anger, hate, rage, aggression, disgust, nausea, rejection, aversion, ill will, and violence. This outer ring is an expression of impatiently turning away from or trying to control the flames of suffering. And I would add that's trying to control the flames of anger, not accepting it. A couple of paragraphs later, Reb quotes from the philosopher Albert Camus saying, he has good advice for the Buddhist sitting in the middle of the fire of existence. He writes, this is Camus now, one may long as I do for a gentler flame, a respite, a pause for musing, but perhaps there is no other peace for the artist than what he finds in the heat of combat. Every wall is a door, Emerson correctly said. Let us not look for the door and the way out anywhere, but in the wall against which we are living. Instead, let us seek the respite where it is, in the very thick of battle. For in my opinion, it is there. As a result, there shines forth fleetingly the ever-threatened truth that each and every person on the foundation of his or her own suffering and joy builds for all. Pretty deep, huh? Every door is a wall. So, so it's in the midst of the circle of flames circling us, this pain, the anger, and the decision not to try to escape. And not, not to grasp for it either. Not to say, I'm going to control this. Neither. Just to be there with it and be kind with it, be kind to ourselves. I think it's really good to understand that it's not right or wrong, good or bad anger. It just, it is, like you said, and, and that it arises. And it's our response that matters. Um, it can be really energizing. I mean, I think about being, it's, it's good to be angry about injustice or about some buddy shooting some poor young woman in the head because she took a wrong turn in their driveway. That makes me angry. But to hold on to that and to think, oh, what a horrible person that guy, it's more, the useful thing would be what is the what is the response what is the compassionate response and and i can come up with a lot of different ideas in my head but in terms of being angry about those kind of things then for me it's usually i've got to get busy uh, paying attention to gun legislation in my own state or or something like that what can i do to alleviate that kind of suffering instead of holding on to the anger and just complaining about it to everybody I see about how the country is going to hell and la 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 la. <laughs> so that kind of thing. And I'll read one last thing from Dido Lowry and Lurie. Anger is incredibly debilitating. And I would add to that that it's holding on to the anger that's debilitating. As we said, it's it's not good or bad, right or wrong. 
we come into practice searching, wanting to take care of our questions and our doubts, but we carry into practice all the baggage that has prevented our life from unfolding harmoniously. The baggage is our entangled conglomeration of ideas and positions that have worked together to cause our suffering. It is the deep-seated conditioning that has stifled us and impinged on the life of others. And so that's what we get to work with, <laughs> all that baggage and, uh, and whatever it is we accumulate uh, as we go throughout our days. But I will say that I don't hang on to anger as much as I used to, either at myself or others. And uh, that, that's a great gift and a great relief. And I think that's, that's all I have to say. You think we're done, Steve? Okay. Now, uh, questions and comments. Kelly. Well, I just kind of wanted to say I, I, I really appreciate, Steve, when you were uh, uh, really focusing on, on anger and attachment and, and also, Kate, you, you were talking about not holding on to the anger because it, it occurred to me as, as you both were talking, I was like, it doesn't really say don't be angry, does it? It says don't harbor ill will, like do, do not give shelter to it. Just, you know, let, let it come and kick it out, <laughs> um, which is maybe more forceful than it's meant. But uh, I don't know. I just I, I appreciated that from both of you because it really made me think about it. It's like, no, it's not actually saying don't be angry. It, it's saying don't give your anger safe harbor to like kind of live with you. I'm looking for this. Um, Reb actually does say there's a translation that's a little harder than that. Um, yeah, the one in uh, the heart of being says, don't be angry. I found where Reb says he, he had interpreted it similar to what you were saying, Kelly, and similar to the way that Kate and I have been talking about it. But then he was doing some translation from classical Japan. Um, and he found it that the precept is, he says, more accurately translated as a disciple of Buddha does not become angry. And uh, it's one thing to give up anger and apologize for it, and it's quite another to commit yourself to not becoming angry at all. Now, I, I, um, I also struggle with this, and I'm not going to uh, go ahead and read all that Reb says because I haven't fully absorbed his point of view on, on this myself. I do see it as, um, as part of not being and not having permanent, not giving anger permanency. So um, I would take this to mean a disciple of Buddha does not become angry. Like they don't make anger themselves. They don't say, I am angry. They might have anger. It might flow through them like it does for us all. But it wouldn't be something that they build a personality on or even build a decision on. They rec we recognize it as anger. We let ourselves feel it, let it be there, and patiently see how long it wants to stay. Does it want to complain all day, or will it leave after five minutes, or, or luckily 10 seconds, maybe? That's a, a way of saying that I agree, and yet it's, it's a little bit, I, 
you know, we always want to get a little bit deeper than the words. Uh, I find it a little bit like I have a tendency to want to get comforted in the words to sort of let me weasel out of things and uh, and at the same time be inspired by them and find that sweet spot where it's a little bit hard. It brings me to the reality of, yeah, anger is a, it's a big deal in my life. And to also say, and I, I, I'm not trying to control it and I'm not letting it control me. Just find that place where it's neither grasping nor pushing away. That's okay. Do you have anything to add? That's a, a tough spot to find. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. But I, I like that you said that you talked about the stuff that Reb wrote about not becoming angry and made those it, it would be interesting to read more about that he says in that uh, about that writing it's, yeah yeah he doesn't exactly say that I, I was i i didn't i don't want to get into exactly what his point of view is i'm saying this is how i see it right. um, well i like the way you see it oh, well, thank I'll you. think about it some more liam i like steve's illustration of uh, getting to know his anger, almost having kind of a dialogue and kind of unwrapping it, I think was really useful. And then um, Kate pointed out, uh, like, don't forget yourself. It's not just the projecting out. So as, as a young person, I, I had a lot of anger. And in hindsight, I can see a lot of it started from anger at myself and then got projected outwards. So other people got to enjoy it as well. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, those are all, all very useful things. Thank you. Well, I guess we are done for this evening. Thank you everybody for being here. It's been really good. Thank you. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.